And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud Gary Kerry Wilford, the Coot Street Podcast! And we're, we're, we are just getting so good at this opening, one of these days we're going to get it down right. Um, how, how are things in, in sunny, summertime Perth? It's raining. Well, I ask that because the temperature dropped from 70 degrees day before yesterday to something like 40 degrees here, and it's cold and it's now november yeah well here it's generally warm and now november but we've had a couple of overcast days and truthfully by the end of the week it's supposed to be back up into the mid-90s i guess oh yes right uh, yeah and i mean november is always a bit up and down it's only summer really only generally generally takes hold in mid-december late december then it doesn't let go until may um Yes, but look at from, from from just we shouldn't be spending all our time talking no. about the weather. But from a Chicago perspective, everything you have is summer. <laughs> Every temperature you ever have there is something that occurs during our summer. When it's cold, it's like a cool summer evening. Yes, that's true. It general genu- genuinely is quite different. <laughs> but hey, anyway, so how's your science fictional life going, Gary? A science fictional life is going interestingly enough. I mean, I'm enjoying uh, reading what I'm reading for the column. I noticed that a science fiction related book uh, just won the National Book Award. Colton yes. Whitehead's The Underground Railway, uh, and it, 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 I'm, I'm not quite finished with it yet. But it, it, he's a very good writer. He's written one clear genre book, Zone One, I think it was. Uh, he's one of these writers, an increasing number of writers, Victor Laval is another, Juno Diaz is another, who seems to have no um, compunction whatsoever about using science fictional kinds of devices in the service of a novel, which is not a genre novel in any way. The, 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 the key conceit in the Underground Railway, uh, the under, Underground Railroad, is that there really is an underground, it really was an underground railroad. People would go down in the subterranean and there'd be a a, a, a steam engine chugging along the tracks and there'd be kind of a boxcar behind it and you'd climb into it and you'd climb out somewhere in North Carolina. Uh, it's a it's a bold move. It's a bold imaginative move from a mainstream point of view. From our point of view, it's it seems to me, this is a guy taking one small element of what we would otherwise call steampunk and fitting it into what is a very powerful novel, which I'm now discovering it's really structured like a horror novel in many ways. Okay. But um, isn't so it's basically secret history though. Um it's it's basically a secret history to that extent. Uh he doesn't uh, to at the part I've gotten through so far which is almost all of it. He doesn't make any explanation at all as to how the engineering worked, how this underground railway just got built. He's just actually literalizing a metaphor which is what people like uh, Le Guin and, and, and Suvin and other people have been telling, and, and, and Delaney have been telling us all along. That's what science fiction does. It literalizes metaphors. Well, the Underground Railway, historically, the escape route for slaves during uh, the, the pre Civil War period, was clearly a metaphor. And he's doing exactly what science fiction would do with that metaphor. Yeah. So, yeah, we can cast, or cast it as a secret history, but there are also structural elements in it that he's picked up, I think, from, from genre fiction which is very interesting. I'd, he's somebody I'd really like to meet. Okay. Let me ask you this. Do you think it's a, a recommended reading kind of book? That's an interesting question. Um, let me answer that in two ways. As a novel, absolutely it's recommended reading. It's terrific. It's suspenseful. It's, 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 it's one of those literary novels that actually has a plot. It has characters. It has some horrifying scenes in it. It has bits that look like they could have been plotted by Ira Levin. Um, or somebody. In other words, it's got a lot of paranoid plotting to it. The second way of answering the question is, is it a recommended reading book for the locus recommended list? And if that's the case, would it fall under science fiction novels or under fantasy novels? Um, Those are good questions. I don't know. Before I would attempt to read it, you know, to answer that, I'd have to read the book, and I do have a copy coming to me now. So I shall I shall wait and see when I've had a chance to read it. Hopefully in the coming well, weeks. It's it's an issue that comes up. In, well, I don't know if you and I've talked about this. I've talked to uh, Liza about this, and I even talked to Charlie Brown about it years ago. There are books which I would recommend wholeheartedly uh, to science fiction readers, 
which are not materially science fiction or not principally science fiction. This is not principally science fiction. It's in a, in a way it's reducing the novel to to sort of shoehorn it into a genre. Uh, but the other novel, which I've talked about, which is clearly not a science fiction novel, but maybe an alternate history is the uh, the Paul Lafarge novel, The Night Ocean, which is just every time you think he's he's done with okay, he's done Lovecraft, he's done Lovecraft and Robert Barlow, but then there's a point in it where an 11-year-old Ursula Le Guin shows up, and then there's a whole bunch of scenes with the Futurians and Fred Pohl and Doris Baumgart, and S.T. Joshi shows up in it, and William Burroughs. And come on, anybody who likes science fiction has got to want to read this stuff. So basically what, what you're I saying recommend, is it's associational, though. Well, uh, that seems like a demeaning term to me. Um, I don't know why, because, I mean, the way I look at it is it's the shorthand for saying linked to and of interest to the field without necessarily being substantively of the field. Well, you could say that of William Gibson's last couple of novels, actually. In many ways. I mean, we tend not to split it out. We tend to just allow that it happens and mm. to feature those books on our list. And it's a germane time to have the discussion, because after all, whilst the rest of the world may not be aware of it, we finally are deep into the meat of compiling the 2017 Locus Recommended Reading List. And so yes, we have to we have to tussle list. with these questions, you know. I have a list sitting open in front of me right now of some three hundred and forty short stories, which needs mm. to become a list of about one hundred and twenty short stories to become the final short fiction list. And I guess we had a list a list of about one hundred and fifty books sent out to us not two or three days ago. But it runs into without getting too much into detail about this year's list, which we'll talk about later. It seems to me with the short fiction, you would come up against this problem again and again. Uh, a few years ago, for example, what I still believe is one of John Crowley's finest short stories, The Girl Heard of Shakespeare's Heroines, was in conjunctions, was in the issue that Peter Straub. And I, I remember going through uh, some calisthenics trying to recommend to people, recommend that to people as it's maybe, well, maybe it's kind of an alternate history. I mean, it's got magical things in it. It's do we need to go through contortions to recommend a really brilliant story because it isn't of the genre? Of course we don't. Or do don't. we recommend something like that because it's John Crowley? Of course we don't. The, the real issue there is what we're recommending. That's when it becomes a point. I mean, when I compile mm -hmm. the best science fiction and fantasy of the year, the work that goes into, into that must meet some kind of definition of science fiction and fantasy, at least in my head, or I am it's, misleading yeah. readers. Or, and I must be able to yeah. explain it. The Locust Recommended Reading List is actually a broader church, if you like. Whilst we do classify some things, we don't classify others very much. After all, we classify short fiction by its length, but not by its genre at all. You know, we do call a science fiction novel a science fiction novel, and sometimes we, we're a bit vague about it. And so we do call fantasy novels fantasy novels and so on. But theoretically, in fact, with the way the list is compiled, though we do have a, you know, we do have a framework for it. Uh, say a first novel, there's no genre defined for a first novel. It could be anything, no. actually. I mean, it almost always is, of course, a science fiction, fantasy, or horror novel, because that's our interest, and that's the intent of the list. But it does allow some variation. I also think there's, there's the purpose the intent of the list. The purpose or the intent of the list is to recommend great work from the preceding year that is of interest to our readers. And that, I think, is... I think that's where, you know, we, we get to sit there and go, you know what, uh, maybe you believe that The Pelican Bar by Karen Joy, Joy Fowler, Fowler is science fiction. Maybe you believe it's not. Uh, I've had mm -hmm. countless arguments with people over short stories over the years about whether it meets yeah. a genre definition. Um... But for the purposes of the recommended reading list, I don't think it really matters. I think you have a, 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 a frame, you put it in there, and if you need to, you write up an explanation for why. In the case of the Colson Whitehead, plainly, it sounds like here is a book. It's mm -hmm. an excellent novel, highly recommendable to read, uh, particularly if you're interested in the subject matter of the book, and it has some tangential relationship to the field. Um, I think that's reasonable. If somebody were to read this, if somebody who just was an enormous fan of space opera were to read this with with a kind of almost naturopathic degree of science fiction that's in it, they would approaching it as science fiction is not going to be rewarding. Uh, but 
that's true of some of the better science fiction novels as well. I mean, there are there are literary qualities and there are genre qualities, and sometimes they coincide and sometimes they don't. And it's not like we're recommending Zadie Smith's Swing Time or something, you know. This is stuff that has some no. you know, broad kind of connection, interest, secret histories. If this is what the, the Colson Whitehead could be tagged as, are mm. of interest. I mean, there never was, as you say, quite rightly, an enormous underground railroad underneath, you know, North America that slaves used to get from the south to the north. Didn't happen. It is a literalized metaphor. It's a reasonable framework. There are other books that, that are like that, and we'll, that, that will yeah. continue to feature on the list. You know, uh, it, it is interesting. I mean, as you say, we will go through the list properly at some point. But it's it's interesting from a short fiction list to see some of the broad changes in the short fiction field that become clearer as I go through because you know I have to compile this and I have to get my recommend my year's best you know introductory essay done all that kind of thing, and you see that you know the Focus on novellas has come home to roost this year. That's not surprising to me. No. I mean, I, I now officially don't need to hear another person say to me anywhere in the world, gosh, we really need to have a market for, for more novellas. The recommended, the, long, uh -huh. the recommended reading long list for novellas is 50 plus stories long. And I've never come, come across a list at any point in my time in the field where, uh, where we've had that many novel, that many novellas to uh, cut back down to the final recommended list. I expect it'll what be the longest short fiction, longest novella category we've ever had. Uh, I think that's a healthy sign. Is that sure. partly because the market for novellas is simply healthier than it's ever been? Uh, well, it depends what criteria you use. Yeah, I think it is. I think some people have decided arbitrarily that the novella seems to be something you could sell, particularly digitally. I think that's a key part. You know, it's shorter than a novel. It's a commute kind of a read, all those sorts of things. And so they have decided to create a market for it. And because they've created the market for it, because they're out there trying to get you know, novellas written, uh, and I think certain, yeah. certainly for Tor.com, I know from personal experience, a lot of the novellas that you see at Tor.com are stories that would just never even have been written without that program being there and promoting it. So, so we're draw because the publishers have decided they wanted to focus on it because they think there's a chance they could market those those stories successfully. They are bringing them into into existence, and I think you'll see more of that in the coming couple of years. You know, well, I think it's a, it's a it's a healthy sign. It's a healthy sign. I think that that any story can be marketed as as a, as a, as a in a, in a sense this was this was foreseen maybe by. Uh, by Amazon, not in the science fiction field, but when they discovered they had a market for what they called Kindle singles, mm. and a lot of even novella length nonfiction works mm. uh, were, were selling very well there. So, so I think that what what's discovered in in a weird way, since some of these novellas are, as I've said before, almost the length of a '60s paperback, um, that I think readers appreciate that as well. I think readers, including myself. Think if we can get a good solid story, which is a novella length, and not expand it into a novel, because I've read any number of novels over the years, as have you, as has any science fiction reader, and thought, this would have been a really good novella. Why is it 600 pages long? Well, sure. Um, what's interesting, though, is this idea where people start going, well, hang on, who would be interesting to try to get to write a novella? You know, uh, well, Maybe yeah. they never have, and you, and you get something from them. Uh, as opposed to be something that they would naturally do, and then the kind of stories they attempt. You know, I can say from personal experience that the novellas that I have published, bar one, only exist because we solicited them. You know, and that that's what happens, which is a good thing. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how the list sort of evolves from here and what people sort of support. We've got a, a good group, and the sort of stories are showing up all over the place. It's kind of a bit mad though right now. And I have to say, it, it is one, it's interesting what does show up on the sideline. I mean, this is the year of Rich Larson in short fiction. Overwhelmingly. You told me that. I mean, I'm looking Explain. at the car, well, the car, well, he's a Canadian short fiction writer. Mm -hmm. And is insanely prolific at the moment. I, I estimate he's probably had 16 stories professionally published in 2016, maybe 17. Wow. And I think at the moment, probably 12 are on our long list. Something like that. And they're in all the major markets, you know, sort of 
everywhere. You know, using Asimov's analog interzone, Lightspeed, FNSF, you know, some anthologies. Uh, and you know, across the, the, the spectrum, sort of hard SF, fantasy, all kinds of stuff. So it's interesting to see him coming to the fore. You know, a couple of years ago, it was maybe Sam Miller did the same thing, and he had a very, has had a, a, at least one right. major story out this year, and you know, a couple of others. But, you know, look, we should probably reserve some of this conversation to a little bit later in the year. Well, um, okay, let me, let me raise a question then, which is related to this conversation, because mm-hmm. what you're describing to me makes it sound like an extraordinarily healthy short fiction market, that things are, uh, or things are booming, we have lots of prolific new writers, and on t- in the midst of that news, now we have the news of about Analog and Asimov's becoming bi-monthly magazines, which many are interpreting as being dire news. I don't think it's dire news at all. I mean, both Analog and Asimov's have been ho- keeping their subscriber levels fairly stable, Asimov's has been particularly mm. successful at building a digital audience for the magazine, which is key because generally, though not always, the digital audience tends to be a younger demographic, and that's a very key thing for the long-term survival yeah. of the magazine. You know, there's been a long-time feeling, whether it's actually demographically correct or not, that Analog has had a very large but aging audience, and that as it ages, the overall subscription subscriber base is shrinking, not holding steady, Uh for obvious, rather gloomy reasons. My understanding, I mean, the the problem is, yes, it's a healthy marketplace. However, I don't think that it's an easy economic environment to be producing a print short fiction magazine at the moment. I think that the number of outlets where you can sell uh, printed short short fiction magazines is, is shrinking all the time. I think the loss of the book mm-hmm. chains was a major blow to them. Um, I think that changes in this case, I mean, from what I understand, and I've got no reason at all to think it's not true, um, you know, Analog and Asimov's have, have gone bi-monthly because they're trying to keep subscriber and overall like newsstand prices down, and they were faced uh-huh. with randomly increased postage costs from UPS. So I was like, well, how do we, go, go, how do we actually still produce pretty much the same amount of magazine and reduce cost or increase price. And they opted to not increase price. They've, ch- they've chosen to try and go with the double issue proper to do six double issues a year. And, I mean, obviously they've uh-huh. been doing this a while, for a while. I mean, they, they took a step some years ago when they went from 12 issues a year to 10 issues a year with two doubles, and now it's like six double-length issues. The only thing that concerns right. me at all, and it's just something to, we have to keep an eye on, I mean, in amongst the publicity for the uh, change, it was said that the number of pages of magazine will not be reduced at all because they're going to double issues, 208 page issues, I think. Um, but but it, they're excited because it gives them a chance to focus more on novellas because everybody's talking about novellas, and they're even going to publish novellas. a short novel. Well, one of the things is if you're publishing the same number of pages of magazine, but you're publishing longer stories, that means you're publishing fewer stories by fewer writers. That's exactly what I think people are concerned about. And that is my concern too. And only time will tell. Um, Sheila has been a terrific custodian for Asimov's. And I think um, Trevor's been doing interesting work at Analog. So I think you have to give them a year or two to see how it actually plays out. I suspect it will settle down. It's certainly not in their interest to make the magazines less friendly to new writers or to or to publish a much smaller number of stories. So, so I, I expect we'll see it will settle out, hmm. but you know we'll have to see. Well, the longer issues, I suppose, would theoretically make each individual issue mar- more more marketable. To, to the extent you're right, uh, the single issue sales seem to have disappeared from just about every magazine in the world, not just genre magazines, because there are no bookstores to buy them in anymore. I guess my other concern is what will happen, and maybe this has already happened. When I talk to young writers five, ten years ago, there were there were a lot of online markets. Let's go back 10, 15 years even. There were quite a few online markets then, but most young writers wanted to see their work in print. There was a panache that came to having a story on paper in FNSF or Analog or Asimov's, and I wonder if that sort of glamour of the print edition of your story has worn off if people no longer see that there's that added 
uh, sort of uh, respectability you get in print? I think I think it really depends on the individual writer. Is what I think. I'm sure that. Um, I th- I've met people who are really delighted with digital sales, who feel that they are getting the kind of um, uh, respectability, the kind of exposure, the kind of achievement that they they would have gotten, say back in the back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. I mean, back in in yeah. the science fiction and fantasy field prior to say in the mid 90s. If you were in one of the quote-unquote big four, whichever they were at that time, then you felt like you'd cracked the market. Now, some of the digital magazines sit in the place of cracking the market. I think there's still a, a satisfaction in seeing a work make its way into print, you know, physical print. I don't know that that's going to last forever, though. Um, I, I can see a, a situation where we, we will finally get to a stage where there are no print magazines at all. And they're purely digital. That that seems like a almost certain outcome eventually. And that's fine. But you don't see that happening. You don't see that happening with full-length novels, though. If, if anything, I'm seeing more and more surveys indicating that people prefer, are beginning again to prefer paper novels to, to digital novels. So are we, are we going to have a bifurcated field where novels are mostly print and short fiction is almost entirely online? I th- well, not necessarily online, but digital. Yes, you know, like digital. I, I am an, I'm an, I'm an Asimov subscriber. I've been an Asimov subscriber for decades. I haven't handled a print copy of Asimov's in a decade, and I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I'm delighted that I don't have a great big stack of issues of of Asimov's sitting around. I really dislike reading the physical analog. I really dislike reading the physical mm-hmm. Asimov's. Um, I am very happy having them digitally. I really want my books in print. Okay. What's the, what's the difference? I mean, because actually, as an anthologist, you're responsible. You're a part of the market for short fiction as well. And clearly, when you're soliciting stories for Bridging Infinity, for example, the authors know this is going to be in a book, and there has to be st- still some panache to that. There are all sorts of reasons that I feel the way I do. Um Partly it's because, honestly, the magazines aren't laid out as well as the books are laid out. Analog, That's true. As, analog Asimov's, they, I think Asimov's, it's not analog, I think analog still goes split column for all of their fiction. I hate split yeah. column for fiction. And they're <laughs> tiny, tiny type, but I'm, I'm old now, and my, I don't want to be reading all stuff. I want to be able to control type size. For some reason, novels still are more generously typeset. They have more generous spacing between the lines. The type is bigger. They're easier to read. And I like having them in my hand. The other thing, and this is probably purely uh, characteristic for someone like me in my kind of situation, I don't want millions and millions of magazines lying around most of the time. That's been my problem. And for years, and I I admit as right now that I am not subscribing currently to any of the major print magazines, for exactly that reason. I would subscribe to them because I like them. Off and on, I may have subscribed to FNSF six or seven times over the years, uh, Asimov's a few times, Analog maybe once. Uh, but then you end up with these piles of magazines that, 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 and, 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 and in worlds like ours where we have books coming in all the time. You just don't know what to do with them. There's something you, you don't want to throw them away. So it, and, and, and then you get this sense also of what a friend of mine once described as the guilt pile. You've got all these magazines coming in, and there are 12 of them, 15 of them, 30 of them piled up on a shelf somewhere because you haven't gotten to them. And you keep thinking, I'm going to get to them. No, you're not. You're going to die before you get to them. It's not going to happen. Of course, you you, you do touch on something different there, Gary, and it is a problem (laughs) that I've felt right now, and it's a point that that is the the reverse argument, if you like. There's one time of year where I wish I had them all in print, and that's right now. At recommended reading time, you know, I mean, when I first did recommended reading ever, it was in 1997, uh-huh. and I was living in Oakland, and every day I went up to the Locus offices. And throughout my entire time at Locus, and I believe pretty much up to the present day, even though they're down in San Leandro now, recommended mm-hmm. reading is handled physically the same way. Every month, all the magazines that come in are put in a magazine shelf, bookcase. And all the uh-huh. issues are put together, so you have a year's worth of analog, a year's worth of Asimov's, a year's worth of FNSF, and so on. 
And any book that appears to likely be of interest is put onto the recommended reading bookcase. At the beginning of the year, the recommended reading bookcase is emptied. Mm -hmm. And you start putting, initially you'll put the advanced review copies that come in. Then you put the final copies of the books that come in on the shelf. And as it grows, there'll be an anthology section and a collection section and an art book section. And it'll grow over maybe two bookcases at the end of the, by, by year's end. And then when it comes time to do recommended reading and you're going, what did we think was interesting? It's all physically in front of you. All there. Yeah, that I can understand. Completely. Right now, I mean, doing just a short fiction re- recommended reading, it's buried in my Kindle. It's stuck in mm-hmm. iBooks on my laptop. It's wherever it might be that I'm reading EPUBs and Mobi files and everything else. It's in this enormous folder that I have on in my Gmail called Stuff to Read 2016. And it becomes easy to lose track of what's come out. No, I understand that argument completely, and it's the argument in favor of books or fiction in general as physical objects. I mean, my, my version of the same thing is the number of times when I think you've probably tweaked me about this, and I know Locus has in other ways, that I've overlooked a book I should be reviewing because... I'm looking at a stack of books that I should be reviewing, but there's also a stack in my iBooks folder that I forget to look at. Yeah. Uh, or I have to make myself look at. So you're right. Exactly. Uh, I guess digital fiction is less imposing. It's less a thing in many ways yeah. than a physical book or a physical magazine. But it's also more, more and forgettable and more losable. Um, it's it, Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so, so it's entirely possible that... Uh, the other thing I suppose when I talk to, to to writers beginning their careers and they they published a story in Asimov's, for example, and they want something to give to their parents yeah. because their parents aren't going to go online and read this stuff. Your colleagues at a university are not going to go online and read this stuff. You have to make an effort to read anything in a digital form that you don't have to make in a physical form. And I think that's part of what affects everybody's psychology about it. And it's part of why I, I think there still is a kind of glamour to print that there isn't to, to digital. But you're right, it may be going away. Well, I may, well, as I say, there's a thing, though, I mean, like, right, normally this time of the year, I mean, back in the day, when I was reviewing actively, I would have a 2017 mm. shelf already set up. I've already been sent mm. a bunch of advanced review copies. I'd be throwing them up on the... Um, on that shelf, and I'd be looking up and going, hmm, the year's beginning to take shape quite nicely. Uh, I'm really eager to read this one. I'm eager to read that one. I don't want to know about that one, whatever it might be. And now it's kind of like, well, maybe I've been able to get a copy out of NetGalley. I think I've got six or seven 2017 novels sitting on my Kindle and nothing in the, anywhere else. Yeah, exactly. Oh. And this is, this, is a, a, this is a complaint of entitlement and nothing more. I mean, uh, it just it's a mechanical way of working that I miss. And obviously you get actually many, many more arcs. I mean, I assume ultimately you'll get a physical copy of the Kim Stanley Robinson arc. Mm. Uh, so, and don't forget, you've got to review that. Um, but, uh, you know, the... That's coming up. March. That's March or something? March, yeah, yeah, March. Yeah. Uh, the no, Paul, the, the, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, the Paul Lafarge book that you, that you read, the, the Night Ocean, I think it is. Uh-huh. Uh, I've never seen a physical copy of that in any way. I don't know that I ever will. Um, I have two arcs. I think it's a March book also. Uh, but, uh, I mean, the other thing, and I know we're talking out of a position of uh, of privilege here. To say, but we get books that a lot of people don't get. Uh, but the other thing which begins to worry me a little bit, there, there are some cases, I'm complaining to any publishers who might be listening now, where you might as well send me a digital rather than a really badly made arc. There is an arc I have, for example. Um, I'll, I'll give you the title. I, I don't remember the title, but it's 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 the arc of it's a Galang's arc of Stephen Baxter's sequel to The War of the Worlds, The Massacre of uh, Mankind, and it looks like a lot of fun. Hmm? The Massacre the of title? Mankind. Massacre of Mankind. It has no page numbers. I don't know how long it is. I mean, it's it it doesn't interfere with reading it, but it's unnerving to read this thing that has enormous type that goes almost to the edge of the page. There are no margins. There are no page numbers. And you feel like, couldn't you at least put some effort into this? <laughs> well, I mean, things are changing, Gary, and we're old. I mean, I have a copy of The Master oh. of Mankind on my Kindle, right? So that, okay. that's where I'll read that. Um, I probably 
what get what also concerns me, I guess, as a person who likes to talk about books and as a reviews editor, is it becomes easy to lose track when you're trying to make sure a book actually gets covered at all. I mean, the lifespan of books right. is, is so short and so it, they can be so fragile. And I know, for example, there are books that we've not reviewed in 2016 because they fell through the cracks, um, either because it was hard to get a good quality arc or whatever. And what perhaps people mm. wouldn't automatically uh, appreciate, even though as listeners to the podcast, they, you know, they might, is that there's a three-month lead time to get a, a book reviewed in Locus. And once we get to the point where the book is in the store, that generally means it's almost definitely too late because we're not going to run a review three months later, you know. Uh, right. You know, if your book comes out in January and we get a copy in January, the review would run in March. We're probably not going to run it. I mean, we'll do it a couple of times, but usually we won't in March or April. And, then, so it's like and we should it. point out that our, that our lead time is nothing compared to Publishers Weekly, for example. Oh, it's around the same thing, actually. There's about three months, I think. Oh, okay, maybe that was a little bit more than that. Uh, and I mean, you, you, but, you, yeah, you, you, you try to be responsive because you want to cover those books, uh, but, you know. Right. Well, the, the idea of which books are covered, I mean, obviously, uh, you and I both hear from people who want to know why they haven't been reviewed in Locus, and I don't know. Because I'm not the reviews editor. I tell them, talk to John, and he'll, he'll explain it to you. But there are also, as you say, books that uh, don't strike a chord with a certain reviewer. And if that reviewer has the only copy of that book and the review doesn't get written, the book may be, uh, may be falling between the cracks. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I'm... I don't know if you get asked this question or not, but if I were a reader of Locus, I would ask a question of how do you make a decision that certain books go to certain reviewers that are more likely to get uh, get through them or not. I mean, I get everything, uh, as you know. Um, but I get stuff that's not sent to me by Locus. But, but still, there's a question of, uh, are we trying to get the book reviewed or are we trying to get the book reviewed in a particular way? Hmm. And I don't want to use names with this necessarily. Sometimes, but, well, it can be both. Sometimes it is just trying to get the book covered at all. And yeah. sometimes it is trying to get a particular kind of coverage on a book. You look at it and you think, well, I'm aware of the the cohort of reviewers that we have. I try to be aware of what they're interested in reading, what they like to read, what they refuse to read. Mm. You know, we have yeah. reviewers who refuse to, to, refuse to read epic fantasy. They have no interest in it at all. So there's no value in sending it to them. Right. And we don't want to maintain a register of 30 people who we are managing to get books reviewed from. So it means sometimes there's compromise. Generally, though, you know, you, it'll, you know, there'll be a thing, well, because a lot of series gets reviewed, you're going to look for somebody who actually is, is reading somebody, is following their work. I mean, uh, Russell, let's, yeah. to, to name an example, okay. is a reviewer of the C.J. Cherry Foreigner series. And he's reviewed all... 14 or 15 volumes to date. Uh, when we get the manu when we get the arc of volume 16 mm. or 15, I'm unlikely to hand that off to somebody new altogether to review it because it helps to have read the preceding 14 volumes. Absolutely. So and I think that's the problem. When you have an important writer like Cherry, it's important to get that coverage with that kind of knowledge. I mean, and sometimes you vary it up. It's, for example, uh, I made sure that you got sent a copy of the John Darnell novel that's coming out in the new year. You know, the, the guy mm -hmm. from the Mountain Goats. But I also got a copy sent to James Bradley. So, ah, so, so that we can run two reviews of it because they will be very different. You will tend to, because it's what you tend to do in this context, speak to the book from within the, the heart of the field. James right. will probably take a somewhat you know, extra science fictional, uh, extra uh, beyond the boundaries of genre kind of look at the book and will be very smart and articulate from that perspective, and it'll cast two different lights on it. And I guess some people will say, how do you make a decision that a book is interesting enough to be worth more than one review? Sometimes it's because it looks like a major book, and you want to see it uh, from, from different perspectives, mm -hmm. so that you can you know, sort of appreciate it better. Sometimes you just can't resist, you know, stop people because they are so eager to review favorite author or whatever. I mean, I expect we will run several reviews of the Kim Stanley Robinson novel because everybody is always eager to review Kim Stanley Robinson. Of course, everybody's going to read it anyway. And, 
and let's face it, we've got uh, we've got as reviewers, we have limited reading time beyond what we're going to review. And if I've got a pile of things to read, and, and you're absolutely right, the Stan Robinson novel is definitely going to be something I read. So there's a kind of common sense thing that says, if I'm reading it, why am I not reviewing it? So you go ahead and put that, and then something else gets, gets bumped off to the side. There, there's another uh, way of looking at that from the perspective of a reviewer. There are things that you know I like and things I, I don't like, and I review quite a bit more science fiction than fantasy. But nevertheless, uh, a fantasy that in generic terms might not be interesting, might turn out to be a fantasy by a Pat McKillop or a Peter Beagle or an Ellen Kushner, which is really well done and really interesting from that perspective. Uh, I'm always surprised when I like things that I didn't think I was going to even read. But every, every once in a while that happens soon. Of course urban it fantasy, does. I mean, we've talked about that before. Hmm? Yeah, we can say it. Urban fantasy. Urban fantasy has to have some now urban fantasy i'm using that in the marketing sense of the term mm -hmm. i have my own ideas about urban fantasy which have nothing to do with what is now the market category i'm convinced there are masterpieces out there in urban fantasy there can't be that much stuff written in that kind of a subgenre that is all formulaic and and, and and all uh sort of prefabricated but if i don't read in the genre and if i don't read reviews of it i'm never going to find out who's written the great urban fantasy novel it may be out there, and it may be that I just don't know it. I'm sure that's true. I guess it comes down to who you trust to make that assessment, though. You know, um, who who do you want reviewing that stuff? Who would you listen to if they said, you know what? Actually, uh, yes, Charles Lind is very very prolific, but say Memory and Dream that he wrote back in 1992 is a spectacularly good urban fantasy, particularly if you you you, yes. you, you, you pin urban fantasy as a definition to the school of fiction that Terry Windling was editing back in the 1980s at Ace and into the early 1990s at Tor, I believe, off the top of my right. head. And not just equating it with the paranormal romance kind of stuff. And even and exactly. not even have to set my prejudice on, and there are brilliant works of that. I just don't particularly tend to read that stuff. Yeah, I, I, I think there is a sense at which uh, we become genre snobs to some extent, or subgenre snobs. We like certain kinds of things doesn't mean I don't uh, respect people who like paranormal romances. And, and uh, partly this comes from teaching for so many years. Mm -hmm. You learn after a while. Uh, and it's not just teaching. It's dealing, with, um, it's dealing with relatives. It's dealing with family members. It's dealing with friends of family members. It's dealing with the real world, the world outside our bubble which actually kind of came crashing in on our bubble a couple of weeks ago here in the States. And when you're dealing with that large number of people, you learn not to question anybody's reading taste if they have any reading taste, if they're reading anything. Uh, the, 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 the paranormal romance fans may love formula stuff, but Agatha Christie fans loved formula mm. stuff. Uh, uh, it, 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 doesn't say, it, it doesn't mean there, there are no... Uh, this is one of the things I'm quoting from Ursula Le Guin's recent collection of nonfiction, Words Are More Matter. There are, there are no bad genres. There are only bad books. Probably so. I mean, obviously the issue that reviewers have is they suffer from the curse of the, the quest for novelty. That having read, because they read a lot and have to talk about it a lot, they're looking for something that's right. interesting and novel enough to do it. And that means you tend to avoid, however good they may be, uh, works that are essentially similar to their predecessors, you know, series titles. I mean, here here is right. a, a, a test for any reviewer, yourself included. And it's interesting. How long is it since you you read Volume 4 in a series? Um, good question. I'm not really certain. I could, I could name some series I've read up to Volume 4. And the fir for some reason, the first one that comes to mind, because... The Joe Abercrombie series only ran to three, and I read three of those and enjoyed them. Uh, there were six novels about Corbin Luce Drive that our friend Cecilia Holland wrote, and I read all of those. They're relatively short. But every once in a while, I get books, more than every once in a while, at least once or twice a month, I get books in the mail, not sent to me by Locus, that is, is, is a 700-page, and it says Volume 3 of the Garibaldi Quintet or something. And no, I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to go back and try to read the first two volumes. I've never heard of it. I've never read reviews of them. 
I hope there's nothing out there called the Garibaldi Quintet because I thought I made that up. But by and large, uh, no. Um, I, uh, series reading, it's, it's, it's kind of the issue we, we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago with, with the idea of a series being eligible for a Hugo Award. Series reading, I think, is different from novel reading. I think series reading is the equivalent of binging, only using novels instead of TV. Yeah, I, I guess so. And, and since I'm a chronic, you know, I'm a chronic binger of, you know, of, of television series mm. right now, it would be hypocritical of me to be critical of uh, series. I don't feel that way. I'm curious as to what attracts me, you know, us all to read though. Uh, it's, it's it's a struggle to keep reviewers fresh and to keep them uh, focused on what they might be reviewing. And maybe that means it's time for them to take a rest. I don't know. But you know, I, I took a look, for example. I, I, this week, I got a copy of the new Tad Williams novel, which is the, his, uh-huh. fir- his first novel in his, uh, his major fantasy series in 30 years, I think, something like that. The first, first Austin mm-hmm. Ard book, a book called, um, The Heart of What Was Lost. And I'm not really sure who I'm going to get, who we're going to get to review it. I mean, it's a January book, so we have to get onto it. But I'm really, really yeah. not sure. Um, it's, you know, I don't know that I have someone to hand, so I'll have to have a, a, a little bit of a think. But I think we should cover it. You know, it's just like I mean, I'm currently reading uh, Carrie Vaughan's new novel, *The uh, Martians Abroad*, which, mm-hmm. pardon me, is a terrific YA science fiction title. But exactly who's going to cover it, I'm not sure, and I don't, I'm not even sure we have a physical arc of it yet. Actually, now that I think about it, so I'll have to check that. But um, it, it's. It's get, it's get, it seems to get more complicated as time goes on, getting everything covered, getting covered intelligently, and in a way that's going to engage readers so that they'll pay attention to it. Because, of course, you know, I am very sensitive to the fact that we have that sort of lo- the window that we're aiming at where, I mean, when we review, we want to be part of the conversation. Uh, to be part of the conversation, you need to be coming out when the, the book is new, or it really doesn't have the same kind of impact on the dialogue about, around a book. And you want that to happen with all the best will in the world around the time the book, the book comes out so that it can actually support it, so it can help readers. We want to help our readers find you know, mm-hmm. the books that they're going to be interested in. So, Well, you mentioned the conversation, and that takes us back to, uh, to, to, to a conversation that you and I used to have with our friend Charles, and he had the idea that part of covering the field, journalistically and critically in the reviews, was to helping, helping the field advance. He had a kind of 1930s progressivist notion that science fiction could continually improve. And our job as critics and journalists of the field was to identify those works which, however incrementally, move the field forward in some way. So the, the, the eighth or ninth volume in a very successful fantasy series may be very satisfactory to readers, but is not intended to try to, to do something new or interesting in the field. And what Charles wanted to do, and he was as he aged, became more broad-minded about this than he had been when I first knew him. It used to be he was only interested in what would advance the cause of hard science fiction. And then he became more involved in social science fiction. He became more tolerant of fantasy. And you know, by the time he died, he was even interested in young, young adult fiction. Uh, so one of the things I think is a challenge, and it's almost impossible to do until you actually read a book, is to know what's contributing to this conversation. You know, What's contributing to the conversation at large among the field rather than simply contributing to the conversation of, let's say, Robert Jordan readers? Sure. Um, and obviously the, the, the challenge that the reviewers for Locus face, that reviewers everywhere face, to some degree, is actually giving that context, putting it into, a, into the conversation, saying this work that mm-hmm. has come out, you, this is how, how, how you describe it, this is what it's like, this is why you might be interested in it, and this is where it sits in the context of the field at large. I mean, to me, the best reviews of science fiction, fantasy, and horror do that as well. Um, doesn't happen all the time, but the best ones do. They, they give you that context. One of the things I was thinking about, and that's an issue which uh, I'll be probably picking your brain about outside the podcast, is I, I did this series of lectures on science fiction for this company, and they'd like me to do one on fantasy. And so I started thinking about, do I really want to read 10,000 pages of one author's decology, which is easy to do? Uh, do I, uh, and, and how do you define what fantasy is, which is much more amorphous? And then you, 
I started thinking, I was talking to somebody on the phone last night about this. There, do you include horror in that? Uh, and do you include horror in science fiction in that? And finally I thought, well, what you really end up with is what is the, what is the desired effect of the book, which sounds like a very reader response kind of thing. But I was talking, well, it was, it was my friend Peter Straub who's been on the podcast. We were talking about, I will not make him responsible for this. I was talking about a couple of science fiction novels that Stephen King has written, uh, which nobody discusses in terms of the dialogue of science fiction. Uh, the Tommy Knockers, which is not one of the better Stephen King novels, uh, has an alien spaceship in the backyard, and it's it's silly. And Under the Dome, which has an extremely lame science fictional rationale for something that really doesn't have a rationale, because the purpose of both, no both novels was to create this creepy horror. In other words, they're both horror, horror novels, even though they use science fiction to get there. So what I'm saying is that there are... There's, there's no point in talking about those Stephen King novels or any Stephen King novels, really, in the context of science fiction because he simply uses science fiction as a mechanism to get yeah. what he wants, which is horror. Uh, with fantasy, it's a little bit harder because what's the emotion you're trying to get out of a fantasy novel? I think it depends very much on the fantasy novel. And this, in fact, is... I think, a, I think it would be fascinating to do, uh, a coverage of fantasy, but I think it would be... Very, very easy to sip, slip into a simplistic and um, elitist way of doing it, and that would concern. I know me. that's the problem. You know, when uh -huh. you tend to talk about your favorite fantasy writers, they are a particular—they're the World Fantasy Award fantasy writers, the kind of world the kind of mm -hmm. fantasy that wins world fantasy, um, which is work that I enjoy myself. But it tends not to be mass popularity fantasy. For whatever reason, right. tends not to be Ted, Tad Williams and Terry Goodkind and uh, whoever else. Uh, and whilst it's, uh, I guess, okay from a personal perspective to not read that material, I don't think you can cover the genre in any useful way at all without actually talking about what is the heart of it all, because it actually is the central river of fantasy. I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure that's true at all. I think it's uh, it's it's the central river of fantasy. It's certainly the central commercial and marketing and popular river of fantasy since Tolkien. It is fantasy in the Tolkien tradition. Uh, and, and what I think uh, is, and it, you're absolutely right, it has to be addressed. Those uh, Some of those are very good novels. Stephen Donaldson has to be addressed, and, and, and Tad Williams, and Terry Goodkind, and, and, and so forth. Uh, that is clearly, in my mind, a Tolkien tradition. It is not the only tradition in fantasy. It is simply the one that overwhelms us in the marketplace. It has epic movies made from it. Uh, there is a tradition of fantasy that looks more like Jonathan Carroll novel. Sure. novel. But, um, but if you can't which talk is a about, very different. But if you can't talk about Kate uh, Elliott and you can't talk about Catherine Kurtz and you can't talk about Marion Zimmer Bradley <laughs> and you can't talk about Robin Hobb and you can't talk about Glenda Lark and you can't talk about Many, 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 many writers. If you can't talk about their work, right. you're missing an enormous chunk of it, both commercially but also creatively. I think it's a mistake to suggest there's not an enormous creative part of it as well, right? And so, there is. if you're going to do, if you were to do the Masters of Fantasy, whatever you call it, um, I don't know what it is. Um, then I think you would have a huge task on your hands to do it with any degree of facility, because a lot of this, to me, like let's say you'd say. 10 lectures, the World Fantasy Awards kind of fantasy is one or two episodes. It's not the, the, the heart of it. I would be, well, possibly one or two episodes. I mean, there's a historical aspect to it as well. But you're right. I mean, the main, the, the daunting thing about it, unlike science fiction, where you can identify, uh, probably because I've been reading science fiction probably more than fantasy my whole life, you can identify key works over two centuries that are pretty much easily standalone works. With fantasy, you're dealing with large swaths of kinds of fiction, some of which are easily standalone works. I mean, the, the Lord of the Rings is, a, is, is one of the great works of fiction of the 20th century. When you start adding in the Silmarillion and all the footnotes and that sort of thing, that's adjunct material to what is really a, a, a great work. Um, I don't know that you have to account for every single uh, trilogy and quintology and decology that, 
No, no, you don't, of course, but there are, I mean, they all are exemplars of a broad theme or stream in the field. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, and, and look, it's easy, for example, to say here and say, okay, Tolkien, you know, the, the, Tolkien and Tolkien descended fantasy is a huge part of the field. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the walk from, from Tolkien to Song of Ice and Fire. Mervyn Peake descended fantasy is a large part of exactly. the field. You know, the walk from Peake himself to Mieville via Harrison or whatever else. There is, and it varies around, there's a, a, an enormous fairy tale, folk tale evolution that is part mm-hmm. of fantasy uh, and is, it can't be overlooked. And a probably a large historical kind of element as well. And yeah, there's, there's, there's probably something obvious that I'm missing that belongs here as well. And to me, your epic fantasy tends to blend between the historical and the folkloric. Well, I think that's true. I think that when, when you mention historical fantasy, I begin to think of figures like Guy Gabriel Kay and K.J. Parker, who are actually you, playing with the ideas of history, not simply setting something in a kind of quasi-medieval setting, which is uh, which is kind of a formulaic thing to do. But yeah, historical fantasy, it seems to me, is represents a different approach to the fantastic. The fairy tale fantastic, obviously, an enormous... And, and then you start thinking about the other things, which are the international fantasy traditions. Sure. And then yes. you start getting into really interesting questions. What do you deal with? with how do you deal with, with things like magic realism, which were never really presented as fantasy, but had they been presented as fantasy, would have been classics. And, um, and how, how important is how important is a fantasy as moral lesson? There's that. Uh, there's 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 the idea uh, which runs through Victorial Victorian fantasy. Uh, the Victorians, you know, trying to find moral lessons which were never there in the grim tales in the first place. But uh, and, and then writing stories. And then how do you get from that to modern fantasy. How do you get from, for example, Lucy Lane Clifford's The New Mother to um, Neil Gaiman's The Graveyard Book? Um, or actually, it was no, Coraline is, is descended from The New Mother. So there, are, in other words, what I'm saying, there are historical lines that go back uh, two or 300 years that you can certainly follow uh, down to current writers. Um, and when you start looking at that, you're absolutely right. The, the the large swath of fantasy which is which overwhelms us in the bookstores is impressive in its breadth and scope and in some cases its quality. But there are so many other traditions of fantasy that you have to look at and so many different kinds of writers of fantasy that you have to look at. There, there are people who rewrite not just the fairy tale tradition, there are people like Evangeline Walton who rewrite the Mabinogian. Um, there are figures of fantasy when you're trying to reach gender balances. Uh, you look at Le Guin's Earthsea books, but you're not doing that because you're reaching gender balances. You're doing it because they kind of redefine an entire kind of fantasy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so there, there are problems because it's such a diffuse and all-encompassing genre. There are problems with that that there aren't with science fiction. And with horror, it would be an even narrower field. So one of the things I'm thinking about, well, some horror fiction fits in the fantasy world. If you look, for example, at the two collaborations, maybe three, maybe a third one to come, between Stephen King and Peter Straub, The Talisman and Black House, those are other world fantasies. Mm-hmm. They're, they're full-scale epics, which have really horrifying bits in them. Or The Dark Tower. Or The Dark Tower series, which is, in many ways, an epic fantasy that, uh, in, in, in several of the... I've not read the entire series, but a good chunk of what I've read of it uh, has a mythic dimension that isn't subsuming everything to the horror effects at all. I mean, no. it's really his, it's, it's 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 his most ambitious work, um, and it is epic fantasy, and and it is epic fantasy. Um, there's what you might call almost theological fantasy. Where would you put the Sandman? It's not traditional know. epic fantasy. No, no, I would have to go back. I mean, a lot of it is is basically you know sort of. Folkloric, it is that evolution of folktale myth legend, which is that that kind of space, which is part, I guess, of fantasy. And it is a, it is broad, but it is, but it is not. There is something about it that is not the stuff of epic fantasy, and I don't just mean that standard set dressing, faux medieval, in, you know, Europe, 
that kind of stuff. It, it's not mm. epic fantasy, it's different. Well, I use the word theological almost facetiously, but it does, it's teleological fantasy, perhaps. It, it deals with people who are gods and immortals and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. I mean, American gods are sort of in the... So there is that kind of fantasy, which um, you could trace part of it back to Charles Williams and the Inklings, I suppose, but it's not any traditional epic fantasy that we are thinking of in commercial terms. It's not traditional urban fantasy, even though it deals with contemporary characters. But it does deal with supernatural figures that imply uh, a kind of theology, for lack of a better word. I mean, uh, Aliette de Baudard's House of Shattered Wings is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Partly historical fantasy, partly drawn from Victor Hugo, and partly drawn from John Milton and Christian theology. It is. Now, right. now, now, I'm, now I've convinced myself I'm going to have to talk about Milton's Paradise Lost in this, and Shakespeare's The Tempest, and I'm going to go insane. Child Roland is our I mean, here's the thing, though. Absolutely. Are you going to do this? You're probably going to have to do this. I don't know. Come on, you retire, and Gary. Yeah. You've got nothing but time <laughs> on your hands. Did you, did, you, did you ever agree to do something because you didn't want to see somebody else do it instead? I choose not to answer that question on the grounds that it might incriminate me. <laughs> But, you know, um, sometimes you do things for a broader range of reasons that might seem immediately obvious. That's true. But what, and and, and there, there are reasons I may have lots of time on my hands in the future. But, but one of the things that made me think about when I started thinking about this is that science fiction is the most coherent of these fantastic genres uh, by far. Uh, it has a kind of coherent history, it has a coherent publishing tradition, it has a coherent set of subgenres and so forth. Fantasy is a mess, and horror is, is sort of narrowly crammed into a closet. It may be, uh, in one sense, the most easily um, defined genre, because horror is what makes you feel horror. I mean, it's, 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 it's a genre named after its intended effect on the reader. Uh, but sometimes it's supernatural, sometimes it's not supernatural, sometimes it involves epic stuff, sometimes it doesn't involve epic stuff, sometimes it's fantasy, sometimes it's science fiction. I mean, uh, horror readers are perfectly happy to, uh, to, to claim at least John Carpenter's The Thing, if they're not quite willing to claim John W. Campbell's Who Goes There. So horror can be anything. Horror is not a genre. It's a mode. It's a mode. But it's a but it's a mode that got looked it, it, it got mistaken for a genre because it became a market, and I gather there's still a market for horror, but it's mostly a small press market now. That's you know that and Stephen King and Joe Hill, yeah. Uh, that that's pretty much my understanding that it's not not a a large market though. That may change. It's changed before. Um, look, I mean, yes, science fiction is coherent. I think I think fantasy is a broad church. That's why it appears to be a mess. Uh, it just comes down to whether yeah. you're willing to put the time in to actually analyze it to come up with an idea of what it, it all is. When it comes to horror, as I say, I, I'm, there's part of me that is convinced by the idea it's not a genre at all, that it is a mode, that you get science fiction horror, uh -huh. you get fantasy horror, you get real, realistic horror. Um, yeah. Now, I realize that that will probably set a whole bunch of horror fans' teeth on edge, and I respect that because obviously it's been treated as a genre, and it's reasonable to do so, but when you're when you're analyzing it and thinking about it, I'm also attracted to me. Like, look at look at Lovecraft. I mean, Lovecraft's science fiction horror, right? Yeah, there's some science fiction. There's some that's not. Yeah, but 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 you know, Lovecraft is Lovecraft is a good example because you can also view him as kind of cosmic theological horror. There are elder gods. There are, there are things waiting to take over the earth again. So 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 yeah, he's he's sometimes it's science fiction, the color out of space. Sometimes it's Theology. Um, sometimes it's just people getting their heads chewed up for no apparently reason, <laughs> good reason. Well, I have to say, with, you know, the, with the idea of people getting their heads chewed up for no apparent reason, it's probably the ideal segue to move to the end of the podcast, Gary, because we're getting to the end of our hour. We're down to the last few oh, no, seconds. I was going to... What were you going to talk about? You just, oh, no, you're done. Oh, the, the, the story about, okay, just so to defend myself so somebody doesn't come, the story I was referring to is the lurking fear in which somebody's head gets chewed up for no apparent reason other than it provides an ending for the story. <laughs> da -da -da -da. And he chewed his head off. Fair enough. You can't mm. really, you can't fight that. 
nope, you can't fight that kind of thing. But I think the, the, the questions we've raised are, are interesting questions. The questions that this potential project makes me think about are very interesting questions in terms of how it made me realize how coherent science fiction seems. And maybe that's why it's so appealing to so many of us, because most of us pretty much know what it is. We want to see it stretch its wings. We want to see it move into new areas. I personally enjoy people who overlap science fiction with fantasy the way Nydia Korofor does, the way Charlie Jane Anders did in her first novel, uh, first science fiction novel, fantasy novel, whatever it is. But at, a, at its core, we know what science fiction is. And I think we have a much more diffuse time of it when we start talking about fantasy. That's true. So I think we should do the series. So. But on that note, okay, we'll, we'll wind up and we'll come back next week and we'll maybe we'll get some guests in. We've been a little bit sort of insular the last few weeks. So we'll get, get some other people in and talk about some stuff. That sounds like a good plan. We certainly have lots of stuff to talk about and lots of people I'd like to talk to. Okay, well, we should do that. Until then, take care and I'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. And until then, that I get to do the ending. Until this has been the Coon Street Podcast. <laughs>